it here, and even though you had to overcome adversity, several people had uh, little glitches, these little tests to see if we'll, we're going to make it here. Okay, a um, couple of announcements. First of all, this coming Sunday, of course, if anybody didn't know, it's Christmas. And since it is Sunday and we will uh, be observing the Lord's table on Sunday morning, just so everyone knows. And then I don't think that the only other announcement and one that needs to be emphasized, if you're live streaming tonight, you might want to give us some feedback if it looks good or if it doesn't, because we have changed our live streaming provider. And due to due to that, there's a couple of little glitches that are going on. Things will look a little different on the uh, live streaming page on the Dean Bible Ministries website. And um, but things should work fairly smoothly. Any anything I need to say, Bryce? Thirty-five people are on right now. Okay, so that looks pretty good. So if you've got any problems tonight, let us know so we can keep track of this. But we ran a test yesterday, and everything seemed to be going uh, pretty pretty well. One thing that uh, I'm going to announce, and you can put it on your calendar, is the first. Uh, Saturday in April, uh, I can't remember the exact date right now, I think it's the 8th, maybe that's the second Saturday in April, uh, the 8th is when we're going to have our spring church picnic, so go ahead and you can plan ahead and put that on your calendar, that way you won't have other things interfere along the way. I don't think there are any other any other announcements? How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening to focus upon your word, to be reminded of the provisions that you have made for us in your word, in our spiritual life, that if we walk with you, trust in you, that if we rely upon you and remember that you are our refuge and our strong tower, then we have nothing to fear, and that no matter what can happen to us, In this life, you are the one who surrounds us. You encamp around us, as the scripture we'll study tonight says, and you are our protection. And so we can relax, trusting in you, knowing that no matter what happens, whether it's of uh, negative circumstances or positive, you're in control, and that we are right where you want us to be to carry out uh, your mission. Now, Father, we pray that tonight as we study the Word, we'd be encouraged and strengthened by the tremendous things that we learn, that we might uh, focus our lives more and more upon you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles tonight with, with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. 
We've been studying on Tuesday nights in the book of 1 Samuel. We're in the life of David, the second half of 1 Samuel. And during this period, David uh, writes a number of psalms. And we know that because like this particular psalm, there is a superscription at the beginning of the psalm that gives us the historical a specific historical background to the psalm. Psalm 34 is one of eight psalms that are not only uh, designated by a historical situation, but they they come from this period in David's life when he is being persecuted by Saul. And so they have a lot to teach us about how to face adversity. Uh, suffering, difficulties, challenges in life, and we all face that for a number of reasons. Uh, we always have to keep in mind, I think the doctrine of suffering is is very easy to understand. It may be difficult to apply when we're going through it, but it's easy to understand. First of all, we e- either suffer because it's our fault or it's not our fault. That makes it real easy. It's either our fault or it's not our fault. If it's our fault, it's because we have made sinful decisions. And as a result of that, we are reaping the consequences of those decisions. And in some cases, God has intensified those consequences in order to discipline us or in order to teach us a lesson. So that's the first thing. Second reason we suffer, and it's the first reason that it's not our fault, is because we are associated with someone who is a sinner or has made foolish or sinful decisions. And that can be a spouse, it can be a child, it can be a parent, it can be a friend, it can be an employer, it can be a school, it can be a government. There's all kinds of people that we associate with who, because they make bad decisions, we get splattered. And that gives us an opportunity to grow spiritually. In the first case, the way to to recover and to handle it is to confess sin and get back in fellowship and then to start applying the word of God, and God will turn that suffering into blessing. That's what happened as a result of David's sin with Bathsheba, which we'll study when we get into Second uh, Samuel. But that that's, and if we haven't done anything, we're sort of in Job's position, and we don't know whether it is a result of bad decisions of those we're associated with, and so we are under cursing by association or judgment by association, and we uh, gives us an opportunity to apply the word, to grow spiritually, to use those circumstances to increase our spiritual momentum and spiritual growth. A second reason that we suffer and have undeserved suffering is because God is using it specifically to teach us or to train us. It's not because we've made a bad decision. It's not because um, someone we're associated with has made a bad decision, but it's because we're living in the devil's world. And so suffering is going to occur in the devil's world. It may seem random to us, but God is under uh, God is in control, and it is either part of his intentional will or it is part of his permissive will to allow us to go through that kind of suffering in order to uh, learn certain things spiritually, to advance, to grow, uh, to learn for ourselves, to learn and to teach others by example. And that's where we are in Psalm 34. 
Psalm 34, as we studied last time, grows out of the circumstances at the end of 1 Samuel chapter uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I'm going to turn back there very, very briefly, uh, and I want to read it because it's just five verses. So uh, it just will give you a slight reminder on what we what we covered last time. And I don't think I put these in the slides, but I may have. Right at the end, David is fleeing from Saul. He's gone to Nob, which is just a little bit to the northeast of, of the Temple Mount. And there he has been provided with bread by, uh, by the priests. And then he uh, takes Goliath's sword. And then he flees from Saul. And he's going to hide in Goliath's hometown in Gath. I believe we have a map, but I'll get there in a minute. Then David arose, fled that day from before Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart, and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see, the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? That's a backdrop. Now, if we read that, as I pointed out last time, it seems like David is fully in control of what he's doing. But when we look at Psalm 34, we realize that like most of us, we make what appears to be a good decision, and then sometimes we say, oops, how did I put myself in these circumstances? And we wonder how we're going to get out of them. And I've had that happen uh, many times in my life. I'm sure you have in your life. Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was school. Maybe it was uh, some other event in life where you thought, that you were making a good decision. You thought it through as best you could. You sought wise counsel from mature uh, individuals and mature believers, and then you made a decision, and it wasn't long before it all fell apart. It didn't work out at all the way you thought it would. And some people who haven't been taught very well from the Word say, oh, it must not have been God's will. You think Job thought that? One day Job woke up, and he got word that a storm, horrible storm had come up and destroyed the house where all of his children were gathered for a birthday party, and they were all killed. And then he heard that all of his cattle and all of his sheep and all of his flocks were all killed, and that he lost everything except his, his own health. And he didn't question God. He didn't curse God. He didn't judge God. He didn't say, oh, must not have been God's will for me to have all those kids. He didn't say it must not have been God's will for me to build that, those houses. That wasn't his thinking, and that is fallacious thinking, and yet it's very, very common uh, uh, among believers. So sometimes the Lord takes us through difficult circumstances in order to teach us, and that's what happens with what's David. David made a decision. It seemed like a wise decision to go hide out in Gath because that seemed like the least likely place Saul would look for him. You wouldn't think that David would hide out in the hometown of Goliath, his, who he, he had killed, the great champion of the Philistines, 
and think that he would be safe there from the Philistines. It seems to just run counter to logic. But he thought that, well, it would be the last place Saul, uh, Saul would expect, so he would hide out there. And once he got there and his cover was blown, he knew that he was he was in serious uh, serious trouble. And if you're in that situation, you put yourself into mind. Most of you have seen a lot of war movies and spy movies and things like that. You're undercover. You're in a covert situation, and your cover's blown. Uh, and you could, you, let's say you're caught behind enemy lines deep in the heart of, of Iran, then you know that, that your life isn't worth much. You could die at any moment. They're going to kill you in a horrible way and torture you, and he probably suspected that. And there would be great fear. And that's exactly what we learn in Psalm 34, is that David reflects upon the fact that he had great fear. It's an interesting word we'll see that is used there. David, it's terror. He was terrorized by what could happen to him in Gath. He was scared to death, okay? Now, you don't get that out of 1 Samuel 21, but you get that from a study of Psalm 34. And the result of David trusting in the Lord, praying through his circumstances, and deciding on a strategy, which was to act like he was a madman, was a result of his prayer to the Lord and trusting in the Lord. And in that, he came up with that strategy, and the Lord preserved him in the midst of that that difficulty. As a result of that, David writes this great psalm in order to express his praise to God for having delivered him. So Psalm 34 is a praise psalm. So let's, I'm going to give you about five basic points of introduction before we get started. First of all, this psalm is a praise psalm, which both declares praise to God for deliverance and describes the value and significance in what is called descriptive praise. Now, if you have a study Bible, if there's a study Bible I recommend for the study notes, it would be the Ryrie Study Bible. It has a consistent dispensational pre-trib, pre-mill position. Now, there's some other study Bibles, like the NIV Study Bible that had a lot of maps and a lot of other things, but it's much more eclectic in its theology. And I don't really care for the NIV translation at all, but you can get the Ryrie Study Bible and King James Version and New American Standard Version, and I don't know if it's out in the ESV. I wish they still had it in the New King James. It was updated in the late 90s. He added it, more notes, and expanded things. And I have one of the original editions in the New King James Version, but they don't. it's not out that way. But anyway, in most of these study Bibles, they will give you at the introduction to the Psalms a little outline of some things that you should know if you're going to study the Psalms. And one of those is is describes the different types of Psalms or different categories of Psalms. There are Psalms they call lament Psalms. And this is when the individual is in a crisis and he is writing and calling upon God to deliver him in the midst of that crisis. There's also, that's they have individual lament psalms and communal lament psalms. You also have thanksgiving psalms, 
where the uh, individual has been delivered from his adversity, and so he is giving thanks to God. You have descriptive praise psalms, and you also have uh, declarative praise psalms. There are some slight differences between them, and uh, this psalm combines elements of both. The first uh, ten verses are declarative praise, and the second half from 11 to 22 are descriptive praise. Now, part of what happens in descriptive praise is it's calling upon the reader to learn something. It is praising God, but in order to teach or instruct the reader about the circumstances and how to trust God and what God will do and provide for your uh, for your life. So it's this is a praise psalm. So David doesn't focus on the problem and then call upon God to deliver him. That would be a lament psalm. He focuses on the fact that God has already delivered him and how God delivered him, and he is praising God for all that he has done. Now, the second thing that we should note by way of introduction is that the purpose for this praise, even in the uh, the declarative praise section, the first ten verses, is still instructional. It's designed to teach us something about God and about how God can deliver us and to challenge and to exhort the reader or the listener to trust God uh, completely. So that's the purpose of this praise, this psalm. It is a, 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 a instructive song or pedagogical song. And one of the reasons we know that is because this psalm, like several others, is written as an acrostic. Now, an acrostic psalm is a psalm where each verse begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So the first word in the first verse in English, the first letter, it begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph. Which is where, which isn't really comparable to our A. It's a consonant. It's not a, uh, it's not a vowel. Uh, it's the, it's just sort of a very soft uh, breath, as it were, at the beginning of the word. That second verse, verse two, begins with a word uh, that begins with the letter bait, which is where we get our letter B. The third uh, verse begins with the letter gimel, and so on. And so these were designed to teach people. It would be an easy mnemonic device, a, a, a tool for memorizing something so that you would think, A, you know, it's like the little rhymes that kids would have, especially the old Puritan primer, A, in Adam's fall we send all. And then it would go to B and C and go through the um, little rhymes to take the kids through an alphabet. So it acrostic psalms are designed to teach something. Third thing, by way of introduction, is that the theme of this psalm is can be seen in Psalm 34, verse 8. Psalm 34, verse 8. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Now, I think that we should point out here that this is one of several attributes of God that <clears throat> that defines God, his goodness. We know that the New Testament tells us that God is love. We have other verses in both Old and New Testament that tell us that God is holy. 
But here's a verse that says God is good. And the goodness of God uh, involves a number of different attributes we usually break down, such as his righteousness and his justice. That God is the source of that which is good. But it probably also has an, an aesthetic element to it. God is God is good. He in his creation we see the goodness of God in the beauty of God's creation. So that's all involved in understanding the goodness of God and that God is good to us. So we are challenged in verse 8 to taste and see that the Lord is good. And the word taste, as we'll see, doesn't just mean to uh, go by and take a little sample, like when you're walking through uh, Sam's or Costco or the grocery store one day and they have all the different vendors out there giving you a taste of this cracker or that cheese or this sausage or whatever it is. Uh, That's just taking a little nibble. Uh, The idea in both the Old Testament word and the New Testament word is to uh, fully eat something, to to just take it and eat it completely so that it then is broken down and becomes part of you, and it's it's entering into the fullness of an experience. So we're, we're challenged to taste, to fully take in the word and apply the word, and then to see as a result of fully trusting God to experientially come to understand uh, in our own lives that God is good, that God does good things for people, that God provides for us, that his blessings are wonderful. So we see from this that this is a a psalm that is is very upbeat, it's very positive, it's just a delightful psalm uh, to read through and, and to study. As we go through under the fourth point, in Psalm Psalm 34, we see that the way the Psalms were organized came about at the uh, after the Jews returned from the exile after uh, after uh, 536 BC, as they came back to the land. So somewhere between 536 and uh, f- probably 450, the Psalms were organized, and and many conservatives believe that not only was God involved in the inspiration of the Psalms, uh, because it's a, it's a song book, but the Psalms are not written in, are not preserved for us in a chronological order or in an order of, uh, by author. They are structured somewhat thematically. And so there are many who believe that that God's inspiration extended down to the organization of of the psalms, so that you see certain connections uh, between between the psalms. For example, at the end of Psalm 33, the previous psalm, which is uh, is not tied to any historical event, it doesn't have a specifically identified author. But some of the themes are very close to the themes in Psalm 34. Psalm 33:18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Now, eye of the Lord is a figure of speech. It's called an anthropomorphism. And in an anthropomorphism, some sort of human form, finger, hand, arm, nose, eye, is attributed to God. So certain attributes of a human body are assigned to God, but he doesn't actually possess those 
those particular attributes, but they represent something. So uh, an, the eye of the Lord represents his omniscience and his care. Uh, his involvement, his providence, all of those things kind of tied together. So the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, and that means that God is watching, watching over and protecting those who fear him, those who are walking with the Lord, those who are learning the word and applying it. We'll talk more about fearing the Lord a little later on. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy, those who are relying upon his mercy, and they have a confident expectation to be dealt with mercifully because they understand the grace of God. First with salvation, that we're saved by uh, grace through faith. They understood the Old Testament concept of that based on Genesis fifteen six, that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, so that he was uh, justified not by works, but by trust in God. And then we'll see at towards the end of Psalm 34 in verse 15 another statement about the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. So God doesn't have eyes or ears, but both of these refer to his knowledge, his focus, his uh uh watchfulness and care of his uh, of the righteous, and in the Psalms, when we see the word righteous appear, it's usually not in the Pauline sense of imputed righteousness, but it is in the sense of the believer who is walking according to the standards of the Torah, who's walking in obedience to God. They're a believer, but they are walking in obedience to God. So God is watching over his own. These are the same who fear him. They are righteous. That's another way of talking about those who are growing and advancing in their spiritual life. And his ears are open to their cry. Now, that's again a figure of speech where ears are put for what they do. The ears stand for what they do, which is to listen. And so if God is listening uh, to the cry of the righteous, then they are crying out to him, and that is prayer. And so God is listening to the prayers of the righteous, those who are walking, uh, walking with him. Now, the structure of this psalm will become apparent in just a minute. I want to introduce a little bit about the background here. We looked at Psalm 34. Notice in, in the text that I use, it identifies this as 34-0. Nobody here has that in their Bible, but that's how the computer versions will mark it. That's how they refer to the subscript, or the, excuse me, the superscript. And so this is that historical notation at the beginning that we already alluded to, where uh, David escapes from Saul and goes uh, to uh, uh, pretended madness, uh, before uh, Abimelech and Gath. And here's the map. Here's Jerusalem. We looked at that last time. This isn't very far when you realize, look at the scale here, that it's about six and a half miles from the Temple Mount to Bethlehem. That's not very far. That's about as far as it is from, as I said last time, from here down to the intersection of 610 and I-10. So that's not very far at all. And so if you go over here to Gath, that's probably a distance of about maybe 20 to 25 miles at the most. 
So Israel's not very big. It, it's really small. In fact, if you're flying in an F-16, you're going to fly over the country in about a minute or less. That's why Israel's ready defense has to be uh, better than anybody else's because if somebody starts to attack Israel by the air, they don't have a whole lot of response time. So this is Gath where this scene of his deliverance has taken place. We are, I already read through those verses. So let's look at the outline of Psalm 34. This is the fifth point in that introduction. First of all, we have David's declaration of prayer, then we'll have a declaration of praise, then we'll have his description of praise. So the first part is the first ten verses, which we'll be looking at tonight. And we can divide this further in that uh, David vows to praise God and to call others to join him in praise. So it is not a solitary event. It is... Uh, in contrast, I can't help but think about what happens in a lot of contemporary worship today. And I'm not the only one who has made these observations, but we live in, 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 in a society that is so self-absorbed and narcissistic that this has bled over, some might say hemorrhaged over, into the church. And so worship isn't about God, it's about me. And if you listen to a lot of the contemporary songs that are written and compare them to the classic hymns of, of the church, the classic hymns of the church focus on God and what he has done uh, in terms of deliverance, in terms of entry into human history at Christmas, in terms of salvation, and uh, in these uh, contemporary courses, it's a lot about the individual, me and my experience with God. But David is saying that it's he is praising God, but the purpose is to call others to join him in praising God. And praising God isn't saying, I praise God. Praising God is describing what God has done, uh, done for us. So he's going to declare his praise to God, and it shows that praise to God is not, it can be simple. It doesn't have to be uh, something that is highly sophisticated and difficult, but it is complex as well. It involves a lot, but it is always focused on God. And so in those first three verses, David vows to praise God and to call others to join him in praise. And then he describes that deliverance in verses 4 through 7. What God did for him, what he did initially, and then what God did in answer to his prayer. And then in verses 8 through 10, he will exhort or challenge others to trust the Lord in the same way for protection and for provision. And only in that by do we enhance our walk with the Lord and discover his goodness. Then the second half of the psalm is a descriptive praise, and it is focused on instructing or teaching others to praise God, verses 11 to 22. 
It's two divisions in the first section, which is only the first two verses, 11 and 12. David calls upon others to learn about God. He's developing that theme introduced in verse 8, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And he calls upon others to learn and experience God's goodness. The spiritual life is not limited to learning doctrine to studying the Word of God, to amassing notes in our notebook. That is the means to an end. You can't get to the end without doing that, but the end is to develop a rich relationship, a personal relationship with God that is based on understanding who He is and understanding who we are and understanding how God works in history. If we don't understand God, then we fall We've, we can fall into the trap of idolatry. And it's not an overt idolatry like you have in the Old Testament where they made statues out of clay or out of stone or out of some sort of metal or wood, and then they bowed down and worshipped it. It is an idolatry of the mind where we generate in our own thinking our concept of what God must be like. And then we worship that. But that's not a bit necessarily a biblical concept. In order to know God, we have to study God's word and what God has revealed to us. And then by understanding him, then we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is so important. And so many people just want to worship God or worship Jesus without ever coming to know who God is or who Jesus is. And so they are basically involved in idolatry. And it's really sad because I would guess that the percentage of Christians who are idolatrous every time they walk into church is probably very high in the the percentages because they don't know enough about the Bible to come in out of the rain. And they don't read their Bible. Uh, Incidentally, we've got a new schedule posted on the Dean Bible Ministries website for Bible reading starting the first of the year. And again, we're putting that challenge out there. I've heard so many positive things from people who decided for the first time in their life they were going to read the Bible all the way through. And they discovered all kinds of things. I, I know there are some people who finished a little early, and they started again. And uh, somebody was telling me the other day that uh, they were about to finish because they've been reading the schedule all year. We're coming to the end of the year. And some would say, well, what are you going to do when you finish reading the Bible? I'm going to start over again. I'm going to read it through again and again and again. And the more we read it, the more we're going to come to understand it, the more it's going to get into us. And the more the Word of God gets into us, the more God will use it to change us. And sure, there are questions. Sure, you're going to read things. You're going to say, that just seems really strange. I've known some of the most erudite, triple doctorate scholars in Christendom who don't understand everything in the Bible. Just because you're educated in the Bible or have the gift of pastor teacher doesn't mean you understand it all, and it doesn't mean that that you're not learning on a day-to-day basis. I believe that in a million years, we're still going to be learning new things about what God's Word says. Because if the author is infinite and his knowledge is omniscient, then when he reveals himself to us, there are dimensions to what his word means 
And I'm not saying there's another way of interpreting the text, but that we just don't fully comprehend all that it is that we're reading because we're limited and we're going to constantly be learning and discovering new things. So to learn and experience God's goodness means that we have to spend time in the Word day in and day out. Now, I know some people are in really intense jobs and careers, and if they can read a chapter or two chapters a day, they're probably doing pretty well. But there's a lot of creative things you can do. You can listen to uh, the Bible on tape. There's some websites. Uh, there's one called the Bible.is. Okay, they have many different languages. You can listen to that online. There's various others that you can do. If you have Logos Bible software, I've been told there's a way to highlight any book, including the Bible, and you can click on a menu item, and Logos will read that section to you out loud. Uh, Pastor Rosalind uses this a lot because he drives back and forth from Preston City over to uh, uh, Pennsylvania for his uh, doctoral studies. And he and, and even when he's driving around the state, he'll highlight it, uh, so the textbook or reading that he has, he'll highlight it, and he'll hit the audio play, and Logos will read it to him, read his textbooks and reading assignments to him while he's driving around the country. Isn't it great to have technology when it works? I hope our technology is working tonight. Is it working? All right, good. So... Second part of the second half of the psalm is David instructs others of God's goodness to the righteous and those in need. So there's a lot here that talks about the person who is in desperate circumstances and what they need to do to trust God. So this is a circumstance for David. He is a almost a POW. His cover has been blown. He is in, in deep in enemy territory in Gath. And there are those there who would very quickly uh, take his life. And so he has to come up with a particular plan to deal with this. And as David is wont to do, he first takes it to the Lord in prayer. He doesn't just sit down and just sort of intuitively come up with a plan that seems like it will work. He's going to think it through, and he's especially going to talk it through in prayer with the Lord and let the Lord shape his thinking and bring to his mind the, the strategy that he needs in order to uh, complete the, the, the mission and escape with his life. Now, David has something that we don't have. There's not a person here that can say, I'm going to be alive tomorrow. But David had a promise from God that David would eventually be the king of Israel and that God would put him on the throne of Israel following the reign of Saul. And so David could say, I don't care what happens here. I know I'm going to be alive tomorrow because God is true to his promise. So in, in one sense, David knew that, that he wasn't going to be killed by his enemies. But that doesn't mean he wouldn't be tortured and he wouldn't have a number of difficult things happen to him. And so he praises God, begins to praise God at the beginning of this, of this psalm. We're told in verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So this is the introduction uh, to, to the psalm. And as he does this, he um, expresses this in synonymous parallelism. Now, there are 
basically three types of parallelism. There's more that get a little more complex, but these are the big three. And if you look in your in a, a good study Bible, like one of those I mentioned earlier, they will list probably four or five, maybe even six different kinds of parallelism. The ones that are most common are synonymous parallelism, uh, synthetic parallelism, and antithetical parallelism. And synonymous parallelism is pretty much what it sounds like. It is paralleling two ideas that are synonymous. And that means the thought that it's expressed in the first part of the verse is repeated in the second part of the verse. It's uh, in different words, but equivalent terminology. So that in Hebrew poetry, you're not rhyming words, you're rhyming ideas are developing ideas. And these are just some uh, verses that are examples of where you can see synonymous parallelism. There's a lot in this this, uh, psalm that's uh, synonymous, parallelism. Psalm 2-4, Psalm 19-1, Psalm 36-1 and 2, Psalm 103-11 and 12, and Proverbs 3-13-18. So I use some color and underlines to point the, the portions of this verse that were were parallel. And the first line, David says, I will bless, and blessing is parallel to the word praise in the second part of the verse. That tells us something, that when we're talking about blessing God, we're talking about praising God. God, being totally self-sufficient and infinite, cannot be add blessing, does not need any blessing to be added to himself. He can bless his creatures by providing good things for them, but we can't give God anything that he needs. Uh, So when we find this language in the Psalms that I bless God, it means I'm praising God. So pray, and this is a great place to prove it, that praise is parallel to the word bless, and so that's the meaning of the word bless. Uh, uh, David is talking and he says that he will bless the Lord uh, which is parallel to the word his his praise that is praise to him or praise to the Lord Uh, the first part I will the subject is parallel in the second line in my mouth it is our mouth by which we talk and speak, and it is out of our mouth that we give praise to God. Now, how often are we going to do this? In the first line, he says, at all times, and that's synonymous to the second line, continually. So that helps us to understand the parallelism there. Now, in the first line, he says, I will bless the Lord, and this is the Hebrew word, barach. And you have the noun form, our participial form blessing, which is bracha, or baraka, or baraka, as some people anglicize it, it is bracha, and it is a uh, the Hebrew words have different stems, and this is what's called a pl stem, which just means it's an intensified uh, term, and it means to bless. And it's an imperative, uh, excuse me, it's an imperfect, but it being in the first person singular, it's what's called the cohortative. I underline this. And what this means in, in Hebrews, in, in English, we just have a first person uh, imperative. 
I mean, uh, second person imperative. We tell, you do this. But if we're talking to ourselves and some, making a statement of, of commitment, uh, a statement of resolve, then in Hebrew we would use this uh, first-person cohortative uh, form, and this indicates that he is making a statement of resolve, that this is something I am going to do. I'm making a commitment uh, to do this and to do this uh, continuously. It says, I will bless the Lord, and that's parallel to the word uh, praise. His praise shall continually be in my, ma- uh, my mouth. The word is tahila. That is not tequila. You didn't miss that. It is tahila. okay? Tehillah, and it is a noun. Now, we're going to see a the verb form in just a minute, which looks almost the same. And it, but this is the noun form, and so it says, His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So we would translate this, I will bless the Lord at all times. Continuously, His praise is in my mouth. And that follows the Hebrew word order just a little bit more. So I will bless the Lord at all times. How frequently? Continuously. So it's almost a chiastic in, uh, uh, uh construction there. But as soon as he says this, to make sure we get the point that this psalm is about praise, he reiterates that in verse 2, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Making a boast in the Lord, that is, uh, that is a Hebrew word to praise. But here we have a synthetic parallelism. So just a minute ago, we learned about synonymous parallelism, where the first line is basically mirrored in meaning by the second line. Uh, different words, but says basically the same thing. In a synthetic parallelism, the idea that's expressed in the first line of a verse is expanded and completed in the second or third lines, depending on how many lines there are. So there's a development. You don't have uh, synonymous ideas or words. You have a statement made, and then it's expanded in the second line. So he is saying, my soul shall, and the idea in the verbs is to continuously do something, to continuously make its boast in the Lord, And then there's an expansion on that. Because I am continuously praising God, the humble, now we need to look at what that means because humble is a very poor translation, the humble shall hear of it and be glad or rejoice. So if you want to have joy in this life, part of it is to understand why David is praising God for his deliverance. So the word that's translated make its boast in the Lord is this word on the left, halal, which is where we get, you guessed it, the Hallel Psalms. It's that word H-L-L that's the Hebrew root that has the idea of praise. So we say H-L-L, not hell, hallelujah. See, the consonants are H-L-L. Hallelujah is the command to praise. The U at the end is a is a second-person plural I- ending for an imperative verb. So hallelujah means y'all praise. That's from that, that root uh, halal. So it, and in the hithpael imperfect, hithpael is a causative stem. I will determine this. I am causing this to happen. Uh 
And it, it has a sense that I'm continuously going to do this. I'm making a commitment to continuously do this. And the word for humble is this word on the right, enough, which means it, it, it has, in some places, it has the idea of meekness or humility, but it also means the poor or the afflicted. The poor or the afflicted. And uh, this idea of affliction really fits the uh, situation. It's somebody who is in difficult circumstances, somebody who's going through some sort of affliction or adversity or, or difficulty. And so uh, when you as a believer are talking about what the Lord means to you and what the Lord has done for you in your life, then others, other believers, um, hear of it and be glad. And I, I was, as I was reflecting on this this week, I thought, you know, we don't always hear this. We have prayer meeting like we do on Tuesday night. Tonight we have prayer meeting. We go through, we go back, and we pray. We pray for various requests, but we don't always hear of the answers. And I remember being in many different types of circumstances where, uh, like at Thanksgiving, there would be a Thanksgiving dinner to church or camp or something like that. And then there'd be an opportunity for people to talk about what God had done in their life during the last year. And it was encouraging to hear how God answered prayer in other people's lives. And that's what David, the Psalms are filled with this idea. Uh, my soul, David says, will make its boast in the Lord or will praise in Yahweh. And uh, those in adversity, the afflicted ones, shall hear of it and be glad. They will rejoice. So one of the ways that we have joy in this life, in the Christian life, is because we hear that God has a solution for whatever it is we're going through that God is greater than any problem we're going to face, that God in his omniscience has provided something to, to meet every circumstance and situation uh, that we may face in life. And so we can rejoice that God has a solution, and that's the only solution. So we understand that. And um, another verse that is uses this same word as afflicted is in Isaiah 53, 4, talking about, uh, the Messiah, that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And even there we see that that the affliction that comes upon the Lord Jesus Christ or the Messiah is not due to something he did. He's not being punished uh, for anything he did, but he is being punished for the sins of the world. He is it is through his death that he will justify many, Isaiah goes on to say. So one of the ways that we praise God is because the afflicted, those who are suffering the consequences of sin on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ was suffering the consequences of sin, yet he had joy, Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He had joy on the cross. We can have joy no matter what the circumstances are. Uh, if you're going through problems in a relationship and rejection, then you can still have joy and peace and stability. Whether you have uh, problems at work, whether you have difficulties with, um, with finances, whether you have health problems, that we can have real joy at the same time. 
And when we hear of others who have gone through this and they can praise God, then we can join in that. And so David says to those who are reading and those who are listening, he says, uh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So this is a call to people to join him in his praise, that this isn't something that only David would praise. Remember, at this time, David isn't king. David is a fugitive. David wrote this after he is after he's escaped uh, from Gath, and he is still running from Saul. So he is a nobody at that point. He has been anointed by the Lord, but at this point, he is just a fugitive. And so he is calling on others. He says, magnify the Lord with me and let us uh, exalt his name uh, together. A couple of things to note here. Again, we're back to synonymous parallelism. Notice how the writer will will shift for emphasis. Uh, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So the main verb in each uh, strophe mirrors the other one. In the first one, it's magnify. It's the Hebrew word gadal, which means to exalt or to make something great. Uh, And it is parallel to the second word, uh, room, which means to be high or exalted. Now, when we look at this verse, we say, well, how in the world can I make God great? God's already great. God's omnipotent, God's omniscient, God's omnipresent. How can you get any greater than that? God is the sum of all perfections. How can we make him great? Uh, We can't make him great. We can't make him greater. The idea here is to talk about his greatness, to expand the knowledge of people about God's greatness and his goodness, to tell others that God is great and what it is that he has done that reveals his greatness. So it is to uh, expand the knowledge of God in the world. So when we magnify the Lord, we're telling others about his greatness, and we are exalting him, um, and we're to exalt his name. Now that phrase is, uh, in, in Hebrew, in a Hebrew culture, somebody's name often reflected something about their character. So when we read in the Psalm something about God's name, calling upon God's name, we're calling upon God's character. We're calling upon his, his integrity. We're calling upon his essence. And so it behooves us to know some things about the essence of God, that God is sovereign, that he's righteous, that he's just, that he's loved, that he's eternal life, that he's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, that he is unchangeable, he's immutable, he is absolute truth, he's veracity. And um, these are his qualities. So we magnify and exalt his character, and it is to be together. So together and with me are synonymous. So what we've seen here in the first three verses is David's declaration of praise to God and that he vowed to praise God. He calls others to join him in praise. And then in the next four verses, he's going to describe what God has done to deliver him. In verse 4, he begins, and it begins with prayer. Personal petition to God. It says, I sought the Lord, and he heard me. 
and delivered me from all my fears. Now, this is also synonymous parallelism. We see a couple of different elements here. We see, I sought the Lord, and he heard me. And the second line develops as parallel to, is synonymous with God's hearing. God listened. God did something. In the Bible, hearing is responding positively to what the message was. So if God says to do something and you don't do it, God says, you didn't listen to me. It doesn't mean you didn't get your auditory nerves vibrated. He's saying listening to me means to do what I say to do. So uh, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. So the second line expands just the second element in the first line. Now, the word here for fear is instructive because it's the word magora from the root gore or gur, which not only means fear, that word is normally yare, but it is, or yara, the verb, but it is fear or terror. He's terrorized. God is, you know, the circumstance of David being in enemy territory and surrounded has terrorized him. So this is where we see that that even in the midst of, of this situation, David is, first reaction is the reaction that we all have as fear. That's the core sin nature. What happens when God shows up to talk to Adam and Eve in the garden? Adam says, well, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I ran and hid because I was afraid. Fear is at the root and the core of so many of our emotions and our problems. We fear a loss. We fear a loss of security, that we won't be safe. We fear a loss of health. We fear a loss of of life. We fear a loss of possessions. We fear a loss of love. We fear a lot of things. We are our sin nature is incredibly insecure and the the corollary to that is it tries to boost itself up as if there's nothing to be afraid of and it is all sufficient. That is the self-deception of our own arrogance. But we have a lot of wonderful promises in the Bible about fear. For example, in Psalm 23, 4, the psalmist says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, that doesn't mean that he's facing death, but he's scared because he could die. This would be very similar to the circumstance David is facing in Gath. I am I am faced with the possibility of death, the threat of death. It could be from disease. It could be from uh, criminality. It could be from uh, accident, dangerous situation, any kind of uh, thing where we feel threatened and unsafe and insecure. But David's conclusion is, I will fear no evil. I will not fear at all. I am going to take charge of my mental attitude, and I'm not going to fear. Fear shows up, and I'm going to hold up my Bible and the promises of my Bible, and I will claim those promises and the God of those promises, and fear will go away. He says, I will fear no evil because you are with me. If we don't understand who God is in his essence— and in his care and love that his eyes go to and fro over the whole earth 
seeking whom he may support, okay? If, he, if we are not convinced of that, we don't know that God is with us at all times. Uh, why should we be afraid if God is with us? And he says, you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me like a shepherd. God is our shepherd. This is how the 23rd Psalm begins. The Lord, my shepherd. That means he's in control and he's going to guide and direct my life. Another great promise is Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Yahweh is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? If God is for me, who can be against me? What are we going to do? Why should we be afraid? Whom should I fear? Who's got more power than God? Who is more powerful than God? Who knows more than God? No one. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Rational, spiritual conclusion, nothing. We have every right to absolute, total confidence, no matter how threatening the situation or circumstance may be. The third verse is in Psalm thirty-one, nineteen. Oh, how great is your goodness, the psalmist says. We understand the goodness of God, that he wants to do good and wonderful things for us. How great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you. What's the condition for realizing those blessings? To fear the Lord, to walk with the Lord. Uh, you have laid these up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you. See, there's a parallelism there. What's parallel to those who fear you? Those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. So then we see this brought out, that David is dealing with these fears. In Psalm 34, verse 4, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. In Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him, like a military encampment. That's the uh, meaning of that term. And he delivers them. He doesn't say sometimes. He delivers us. Even if we die, even if we're, we're, we're like this, this young Christian girl that I heard about who, American, that was captured uh, by ISIS over in Syria and was brutalized and raped and beaten for months on end before she finally died. She never, never turned her back on the Lord. She never... Uh, rejected the Lord. She never said that she would give up the Lord, and she was a tremendous testimony to other prisoners uh, who were with her. And eventually she died a horrible death, a, a brutalized death by these horrible Islamic radicals. And yet God was glorified in all of that. And that's a great item of praise. Even when we lose our life, it is God who controls the circumstances and brings us to be with him. The other side, the enemy never wins. We think something bad happens in this life, and it will not, uh, it will not dis destroy us. We will be face to face uh, with the Lord. Second Timothy one seven says, "For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind." That's the mental attitude of the believer. We'll come back next time and begin in verse 5. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be encouraged and strengthened in our spiritual life by reading this psalm. 
recognizing that today we even have greater assets than David had, for we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us, and we have all of the blessings that we have been given in Christ, not only a future eternal life, but a real abundant life right now where we can have uh, incredible joy and happiness and stability no matter what the circumstances. Father, we pray that as we study this psalm that it will uh, resonate with our own soul as we uh, choose to desire to respond to David and to praise you in all the areas in our life as we see you work. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.